a big win calls for a separate separate special episode. Welcome to the Talking Heels podcast. I don't think you need us to tell you, but Carolina is coming off a double overtime victory over Duke on Saturday night. And of course, we're here to cover it. The guy to my right, Jordan Falls. I'm Nick Delahanty. Jordan, what a night. What a night, man. Uh, we can start with a lot of things, but the thing, most important thing is you got to win over Rival Duke and the Victory Bell stays in Chapel Hill for another year, fifth straight year. Absolutely. That's the key. And we're going to get into all of it and much more on this show. And, you know, there's so much to digest. And I think that we could both agree as watching that game, it was just like there was so much that you could that you could sit and talk about for like 35, 40 minutes. Like that's how detailed this game was. And you know what? Looking back at it, reflecting on it hours after, it was kind of a lot more fun than it ended up being the way it ended. Oh, yeah. I think I think you saw that post-game uh, ACC Network hung around and showed the atmosphere in Kena Stadium. Uh, I don't know if there's anywhere else you'd rather be than Kena Stadium last night. It, I mean, it was a legit party. It felt like after a basketball win over Duke, you know, like Storm Franklin, well, they stormed the field and – you can say what you want to, but it was senior night, uh, a big win, Drake's probably last game, and and this freshman class started their college careers uh, with the COVID year where they had the pandemic and they didn't get to go to games for their first year. So let the kids have fun, let everybody party, and and you're 8-2. Uh, and two. Yeah, you're 8-2, and two, and of course, there's those people that are what I called in an article I wrote for Keeping a Heel late last night, the sticks in the mud. You know, yeah, you could say, oh, you know, Carolina should have blew, uh, blew Duke out. Yeah, you know, the game could have been a lot different, and we're going to touch on that. But these kids, like you mentioned, you're you're only in college once, and when you beat Duke, that's like winning the World Series. That's your that's your big rival. Let them have fun. They were having a great time on the, on the field, and it wasn't just students. It was alumni, too. There was a lot of different people that I saw videos of that were enjoying their time on the field, and it's a great memory for those players, and they fought. They they earned that win, and you know what? You look at it and you say, "Hey, they're having fun in Chapel Hill." Yeah, and senior like it was senior night. You mentioned alumni. It was homecoming weekend. It was it was Veterans Day weekend. I mean, it was just such a jam packed weekend in Chapel Hill for the last football game of the regular season. And if they win by thirty one, yeah, you're not storming the field. But the way the game ended, double overtime, Drake making two big plays, and the defense finally does get a stop on the two point conversion. Just all that excitement and electricity in, in Keenan Stadium was ready to explode, and they uh they celebrated. And I think they stay on the field for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I would, too, if I was there, to be honest with you. I would have been storming the field as well. Now, before we get into any topic about the game, I just want to say one thing and one thing clear. I have a tremendous amount of respect for Mike Elko and what he's done with that Duke program. Say what you want about them. They're not a football school. They haven't been a football school, but he has made them to the point where they are very relevant. And during that game, he made some gutsy calls that kept Duke in the game. He is a coach that you might not like his school that he's at. And, you know, for Carolina fans, I don't think he's going to be there much longer. I think that one of these bigger programs are going to scoop him up. But you have to respect what he's done with that program, especially what he's done with this year's team, especially without a star quarterback. Mike Elko coached circles around our coaching staff last night, and we'll get more into the to the play calling a little bit. But, um, I mean, the onside kick 
how we get fooled on onside kick 10 weeks into the season that we saw in week one. I have no idea. And then the fake punt and, uh, I mean, just, it just felt like every time that Carolina was on the verge of putting the game away, Elko dug, dug into his bag. I was like, all right, let's pull this out. And, uh, yeah, I don't think he'll be at Duke much longer. Uh, it sounds like, uh, Texas A&M has an opening. They might be going after, uh, Mike Elko, who knows, but, uh, Hell of a coach, uh, gusty play calling last night. But when you're on your third string quarterback and you feel like you're out talented or outmatched, you have to make those plays or make those play calls, and you have to have the guts to do it. And he did. He really did. And let's start from the beginning because that's the the obvious place to start. Carolina scores on their opening drive. They go down the field with these seventy five yards, you know, and from that point on, I. I, I love to hear what you have to say about this from another perspective, but I'm saying to myself, okay, if they could get another touchdown here in the first quarter, this game could be over before we even think about it. Because now we all know third string quarterback, they're not going to want to throw the ball. They have a great running back, but it takes them out of their element. Carolina couldn't finish in the red zone. And that was the big storyline. They kept getting to the red zone and resulting in three, resulting in three, resulting in three. And, yeah, the points are great. Nobody's going to ever argue that getting points in a football game is a bad thing. But when you keep a team in a game, you get them to have a little bit more momentum. And then it starts to turn, and that's what we saw in this game. Yeah, uh, you always hear the saying, uh, you want every drive to end in a kick, right? Uh, whether it's a PAT, a field goal, or a punt. You don't want to turn the ball over and things like that. So, yeah, Carolina's ending every drive with a kick. They're kicking field goals in the red zone, that's the frustrating part. Um, believe for the course of the game, Carolina had the ball nine times in the red zone. Duke only had the ball four times in the red zone. When you look at those numbers, this should not have been close. And then I forgot what it was. I know Burnett had six field goals, and one was the uh, game-tying field goal at there at the end. But, like, one time we're thinking that with the Philadelphia Eagles and going to go tush-push style with – Drake and the offensive line do it two plays in a row from the one and didn't get in. Drake Drake is a phenomenal quarterback, but he's not Jalen Hurts. He doesn't bench 600 pounds. They don't have the Philadelphia Eagles offensive line in front of them. You have the best running back in the ACC, arguably the best running back in the country, and you, he, he doesn't get the ball from the one-yard line back-to-back plays there early. And then, so, you, yeah, you go up 7 nothing, and then you sell for back-to-back field goals, and you're still 13 nothing. You're like, okay, well – Still can't complain too much. It could be 21, but you're still up two possessions. And then it just kind of like felt like everything started to spiral out of control. Special teams miscue, fair catching a kickoff and dropping it. So the ball goes to the one. You bat the offense up. Drake, I don't know what he saw. It felt like he probably keyed in on Tez there too much. And that has my made up. That's where he was going and threw an interception. And then Duke has the lead all of a sudden. You're like, this should be 21 nothing game. It's 14-13. And then I feel like same thing happened with Virginia and Georgia Tech. You led a good, you led a team that you might be out, might be out matching, but they're still a good team. You let them hang around, they're gonna start getting some confidence and feel like they can win the game, and that's what happened. Yeah, and you know what? Especially in this day and age where the transfer portal is so relevant, and and these teams are reloading, uh, a bad team in terms of record still has very quality players. Like, let's not take anything for granted like these are division one athletes like you're not playing uh no offense to a Campbell but you're not playing a lower level team like a Campbell where you know what you take the points and 
that's going to be enough. This is a, a Duke team that they had something to prove and they wanted it and they played their hearts out trying to get it. And yeah, the Carolina did not help themselves with miscues. The the punt, like you mentioned, and the, the fake punt, first of all, that whole scenario was absurd because that was a fumble. Should, but we, should have never even been a punt. but It should yeah. have never been, but Mike Elko was sitting there. You know what? We're going to lick our chops here. We're going to go for it. Why not? Like, what, what do you got to lose? Same he, thing with the onside kick. You're down six. Nobody expects you in this game. Why not? Yeah, well, and on the fake punt, you're like, we probably shouldn't have the ball anyway, so does it matter? Like, Yeah, exactly. They would have got the – if you miss, they get the ball where they were supposed to get it anyway. Like, it wouldn't have been right. that big of a deal. Uh, Yeah, it's – the whole scenario – Duke's a good football team. Even without Riley Leonard, they're a good football team. Obviously, with Leonard, they would have been a lot more of a challenge. And Carolina might lose that game against Leonard. Um, but, I mean, Duke's played Notre Dame really close. It went down to the final drive there. And then um, had Florida State in a tight one early third quarter, uh, again, without Leonard in the second half. And then uh, at Louisville, they, they lost to Louisville. But Louisville's a good football team who's likely going to play for the ACC championship. So, they yeah. played the opponents. Yeah, it's not like their schedule is weak and, and their record is, you know, because of who they play. But when you look at the red zone for Carolina, I feel like they are missing such an element that they could use. And I, and I have to hear your take on this because I'm going to throw something at you that, you know, we always sit here and we're talking about how could they improve in the red zone? Obviously, giving Omari on Hampton the ball is, is, a, is a big part of that. Like, obviously... He's the guy. But when you get to the goal line, there's going to be times where they're going to key in on that center of the field because they know it's either going to be Drake up the middle or it's going to be Hampton up the middle. Why not put the freshman Chapman in at wide receiver and do some end arounds? He's the fastest guy in the field. You know, give give a different look. Just give it, make him a decoy. Make Hampton the decoy. You have so many options you can use. It's It just seems like they get too pass-reliant in the end zone or in the red zone, I should say. And it puts too much pressure on Drake May to be a superhero when they really have the pieces where he doesn't have to be one. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like you saw a little bit with Phil Longley last year. Like they got the tight ends more involved with play action to the running backs and uh, hand a tight end in the flat or giving Drake a read pass option where he can hunt, hand it to the running back. He can keep it or he can toss it to the tight end or receiver. Um, feels like that's going to backwards and jake lawrence on twitter gave us some red zone numbers uh late or early this morning carol's been in the red zone 51 times and has 32 touchdowns 63 percent uh touchdown to field goal ratio or touchdown red zone ratio um that's 58th in the country however they are scoring when they're in the red zone they're not turning the ball over they're scoring 92% of the time when they're in the red zone. So they're ending in kicks, but again, you're leaving every time you kick a field goal, you're leaving four points on the field. And that's 18th in the nation, but you, you got to do something to get involved there. I don't know why we're getting tricky. Like the fourth down to Nesbitt there after the QB sneaks, Nesbitt wasn't even on the field. So it was a little substitution, but then you still try to do something crazy there. I'm like, Either line up and run it with Hampton, who falls forward like every play, it feels like, at least two yards. I think he's been tackled for loss for a total of eight yards this year, which is saying something with the offensive line, which is not good. I think he's being contacted within 2.5 yards of the line scrimmage. So he's just 
Hampton's just a dominant force and a dominant back, which you called earlier in the year. You you wanted Hampton to be that guy, and he has been. But either give it to Hampton or I'm fine with the end rounds. Um, they tried the Wildcat early on. We've not seen that since week two. I don't want to bring that back. Um, Please, no. You know, but, it works for a team like Duke who's playing with a third-string quarterback. You saw that right. last on, on Saturday night. It works when your quarterback's not Drake May. If you don't have a quarterback, fine. But you you got to do something different. And this is a problem under Phil Longo. It's a problem under Chip Lindsey. There's different players on the field. There's, I, I don't know what the problem is. Why we can't score in the red zone with touchdowns? We are scoring with field goals. I don't, I don't know why we can't score with touchdowns. And if Carolina does score touchdowns, this game's probably early, over early, real early. And uh, in our predictions last week, you said 31-28, close one. I had a blowout. And this is a game that felt like it could have gone either way. Carolina was up 12 in the second half with the ball and was a – Office drive away from putting the game away, and it will have been a blowout most likely. But the offense stalls. Duke goes down, scores another stop. Duke takes the lead, and all of a sudden you're in a ball game. But it really felt one of the key factors in making this a ball game was Carolina's inability to convert field goals to touchdowns. Absolutely, and one of the other things that I was toying with is I was, you know, thinking about how they could improve in the red zone. Why not bring Connor Harrell on the field? Not yeah. to say that he has to take the snap. Like, mm-hmm. obviously, if, if you want Drake to take the snap, that's fine. But line him up in the backfield. You know how much that gives you an advantage because he could throw the ball? Yeah, I mean, you saw his speed last week against Campbell, right? And it was Campbell, but his speed is his speed. And I think it was at 22 miles an hour. I mean, run him, Drake, and Hampton in the backfield. Do you think you might would confuse some teams? Uh Giving Hampton the giving Drake the option to hand to Hampton, hand to Harold. If he hands to Harold, Harold can throw it. I mean, again, getting cute maybe or tricky, but you got to try something different. Um, in the red zone, it felt like the red zone and special teams were two areas that Carolina struggled with all year, and two areas that has cost them some games and could have cost them this one. Absolutely, and. You know, you you look at it, and everybody doesn't realize this, and I didn't realize it either at the time, but Carolina didn't have to punt until the fourth quarter. Like, they they scored on essentially every drive they had except for the interception that Drake threw and that punt drive. They scored every other drive. So they're scoring points, but, you know, and not to say you're getting greedy, but you're looking at it like, like you said, you're leaving four points on the board. That adds up. And in this game, it felt like it should have been at least 17 nothing early on like if you scored two out of those three red zone attempts and you know you put the pressure on they were giving them an opportunity to stay in that game when it was 13 nothing it should have been 17 or 21 nothing it makes it a whole different ball game yeah and i mean you pointed out playing one time against in my opinion the top 15 defense in the country duke is really good on the defensive side of the ball they're really good up front and drake picked them apart and that's just another – I think that sums up his career in Chapel Hill right there, that performance, a massive performance. He probably earned himself the number one pick with that with that game, assuming the rest of the year goes as planned and he doesn't do anything crazy. I, it seems like Caleb Williams is starting to fall off, turn the ball over a little bit more, and Drake just played really well against a really good defense. Uh, if that was his last time in Chapel Hill, it was a hell of a game. Absolutely. What a way it would be to go out and – 
what I loved was when Drake was talking to the ACC network crew and the fans were chanting one more year and he was getting a little emotional because obviously, let's face it, he knows that the the right path for him is to go to the draft. You're not going to turn up, turn down that money and that opportunity. And, you know, you, you can't risk injury and you can't risk your future. But Drake loves Carolina and we would love to have him back. But. You know what? If that's the way it ends, that's a a way that fans are going to remember for a very long time. Yeah, he. I thought that's why he kept saying, uh, "You never know. No, no decision's been made." Like we appreciate it and appreciate the focus on the rest of the season, but we like he's going. Like especially if it's number one overall pick, like how could you not? So, but uh, where this team would be without Drake May is, I don't think anybody could predict. This team probably only has three wins without Drake May. And like, oh yeah, he and even last year, but like, just once again, uh, forty seconds to go, two timeouts. Uh, let's just pick our way down the field, and uh, I, I think we probably five or six years ago, Carolina gets the ball down uh three with forty seconds to go, and fans are starting to head for the exits. But when you got number ten at quarterback, everybody trusts that he can get you in the field range. He's got like Patrick Mahomes; he just needs a little bit of time, even if it's only thirteen seconds. You know, like Mahomes, but uh. 40 sacks is plenty of time for Drake, and you got Tez Walker and Nesbitt. Nesbitt was huge last night. Uh, two big catches, one questionable interception that wasn't reviewed. I didn't think it was an interception. I think you thought it was. Uh, yeah, but, we're gonna. I'm gonna get into that. I I, I have my thoughts on that. Catch, so. Well, we we can go to the officiating how bad it was. Uh, of course, that's what I kind of was uh, was gonna say. In that situation, in the, in the game. And of course, I'm very happy that the play stood. I'm not here saying, oh, it should have been overturned. But in that situation, a questionable call. They went to the video board to check the Tez Walker catch that he was in bounds the entire time. You mean to tell me that that questionable jump ball, you don't want to check and be like, all right, let's get the call right. As Nesbitt comes down, it might not have had enough evidence to overturn. But that ball was going out when he was coming down. And if you're Duke and if you're Mike Elko, you have to be pissed that they didn't even look at that. That's something that I feel is such a, you know, a slap in the face to Duke in a way that in such a big moment in a big game, they didn't even take the minute to go to the video to go and review that. So here's, I think he was down. I thought his backside was down before the balls ripped out. And if it wasn't, then I think they both had the ball, in which case, you know, Ty goes to the runner. Ty goes and to the, the yeah, the play stands how it's called yeah. on the field. Play stands. So the only thing, one props to Carolina for getting up and running a play in that situation. So they didn't give them a chance to review it. But the referees two, tried. They yeah. were they, they were waiting around. The, they were waiting around. They <laughs> like Carolina's trying to run a play. There's not even a ball in the, at the line of scrimmage. So, um, but it was like two oh eight left. It was right outside that two minute mark, and the officials still reviewed it. Elko could have called a timeout, could have used one of his timeouts to give them more time to look at it. And I guess that's one of those situations. Do you want to use a timeout that you might need later? Um, I was shocked they did not review that because um, they did review the Tez Walker play that you mentioned, and that play is not reviewed in the NFL. I mean, he had three feet in. He was inbounds the entire time. Like, that crew, I don't know what they were looking at. And then – we mentioned the fumble. The ball's clearly out. I've posted screenshots on social media and a video. Like it's, and if the ball wasn't out, the ball goes backwards. So 
yeah. it's a it's a backwards lateral. It's one or the other. Um, just the officiating all night. It felt like Carolina got screwed multiple times. Duke got screwed multiple times. Um, did you think there was an illegal man downfield on the two point conversion? I didn't think so, but the way that our lineman acted, it was kind of like, yeah, we kind of got like, away with one. So yeah, he's like hiding in the end zone, like. Dude, you're like 300 yeah. pounds. You're not hiding from anybody. Like, if I did that, maybe I could hide. But him? No way. He goes and then, like, looks around and, like, I didn't see it live when it happened. I just saw Drake getting sandwiched and making a throw to Copenhagen. And, uh, but then saw people tweeting afterwards. I grabbed that. That spring clip is on my social media, too. The rule, people are confused on the rule because in the NFL is one yard downfield for linemen and college football is three yards downfield and he is right at the goal line. Um, but he's engaged with a blocker and or with a defender, so that's really close, but uh, I think it was a good call, good no call. Uh, one time the fish, the officiating was decent. Again, might be biased. It worked out for Carolina, but I, I think he was right there at the within the three-yard threshold, so that worked out, but uh, think about the worst call in this game. We haven't even touched on it yet. the The referees call the face mask on the O'Marion Hampton carry. Yeah, and he's dying like right here. He's not even like he wasn't even near his face mask. Yeah, that one was uh, that was uh, oh. that was that was bad. Um, and and you know but, what? I I get it from both sides. If it was Carolina, I'd be fuming. I I would be mad. Same thing with the Nesbit play. Like at least go to the video. Like, if you could tell me, you know, there's not enough evidence to overturn it, I could live with that. But at least review it. Here's the thing, too, with officiating. And this probably doesn't matter so much from the Duke point of view as it does from the Carolina one because Duke doesn't care about the other games. But we've seen Carolina get screwed on officiating against Virginia and Georgia Tech with holding penalties that were just for blocking. Um, so many bad missed calls or calls that went against Carolina those other two games and losses. So – um, going back to the App State game, Huzzy made a play on in double overtime that App State fans argued was a defensive pass interference on fourth down. So, at the end of the day, it probably all evens out. But, like, obviously, for your opponent, which in this case is Duke, they don't care what happened against App State or Virginia or Georgia Tech. From our standpoint, we got robbed of plays against them, those teams. Well, it comes back and evens out, I guess. But the officiating for the ACC has been awful all year. It's been awful. Every game I watch, I watched three ACC games this weekend. Louisville, Virginia was bad. Storm uh, Duck got away with a pass interference at the end of that one. And a face mask. Yeah. Storm Duck got away with both of those. There was a he didn't get that call in Carolina. Nope. And there was an unnecessary roughness on Louisville that they picked up. They picked up a holding flag on Louisville. Uh yesterday in Miami, Florida State, Florida. Jordan Travis is clearly sat in the end zone for a safety, and they ruled him out at the one. And uh, so I don't know what the ACC needs to do for officials, um, but they need to do something to get fixed because it feels like this is a thing year after year after year. And for a conference that is starting to take a bat seat in basketball a little bit and trying to get on, on the, put their blueprint on college football, you don't want the officials to overtake games in situations where you got teams – fighting for college football playoff contention, ACC championship contention, and you got teams that you want as many teams as you can in the college football playoff rankings, and you only have three right now, but you don't want Louisville to – you don't want to be favoritism toward those teams, but you also don't want a team to lose like Carolina because of bad officiating either. So um, just the officiating all around is bad. 
and needs to be fixed. But it worked out for Carolina in the end. They survived. Uh, felt like Drake May and Amari Hampton carried them. They dragged the coaching staff to the finish line because the coaching staff was so horrendous last night. So, on that note, how are you feeling after this win? Obviously, as from the fan perspective, you're thrilled that they mm-hmm. win that game. And, and you know what? How it happened? It happened. You know, we live with the stress of it as it is. But from a looking at it for the next two weeks kind of perspective, what's your take on how you feel about this group heading into the final two weeks of the regular season? I feel like this is a good football team. I feel that they can finish the season strong. Next week will be tough. Um, and Death Valley road game, um, be on ABC. I, it'll be a tough game. I and then state is state. I I feel like there is the potential there to finish two and zero and finish the season at ten and two. The concern is the coaching staff. I trust the players on the field. I don't trust the guys making the play calls on either side, um, defense or offense. Uh, so I am still. Keeping my optimism high. Uh, I had put out an article on Keeping a Hill that Carolina was basically eliminated from the college, or from the ACC championship uh, race. Apparently, that is not true. So, we will work on figuring out what scenario that is this week that they can still get in. I don't think it's possible. I know, I do know that Carolina has to win out and that Louisville has to lose to Miami. Um, other than that, there's some other things that have to happen. We just don't know what that is yet. Without these divisions, that gets very confusing. Um, I'm not – I don't know if there will be anything done in the next two weeks on the coaching staff or any adjustments made, but the offseason has to have something change. Either mostly more, more so on the defense side of the ball, obviously. You, giving up 45 points to Duke to a third-string quarterback is horrendous. I, I give you're, you're in a 16-13 game against the number 15 defense in the country, but not 47-45 shootout. So uh, – <laughs> Yeah, I, I think they're going to finish strong. I do see a scenario where they finish 10-2. and two. I have to agree with you on the optimistic part of it. You know, I, I do think that when 10's under center, you could do anything. And, you know, there's only certain quarterbacks you could feel that way about. And Drake has just proven that. And Marion Hampton's been amazing. Tez Walker's been outstanding. The thing that concerns me is the defensive side of the ball. because. I texted you and I said Swiss cheese. They at some point they were like Swiss cheese. They oh, it's yeah. been a common denominator. And early on in the season, we thought that they fixed this, that they were looking better. And then all of a sudden it just goes back. I think Gene Chizik might be on the hot seat. I don't know how you could go into a year three the way that they've been playing. And you know, I, I don't want to speculate on that. Obviously, we have time for that, but I really do think that the coaching staff has to do something to put these players in a position to win games. Dabo Sweeney's going to outcoach them if they show up like they did against Duke. It's it's going to happen and I love Mac Brown. I tell you that all the time. But something has to change and whether it's red zone efficiency, go back to the drawing board. Like try something different. Clemson's not going to bow down at at the goal line if you get into the red zone. They got some big bodies up there on the, in the front seven. I just feel like this team has the potential to be 2-0 down the stretch and finish 10-2, like you said. But I also could see a situation where they disappoint us again. There's no way to to tell with this group. 
And yeah, I, I'm going to be optimistic. Be like, yes, I want them to be 2-0. I think that they're going to do it. But that little part of me deep down is telling me, you know, don't get your hopes up yet. Yeah, that's the biggest thing is I think you hit that on the head. Like they could be 10 and 2 or they could be 8 and 4. I, I don't see a scenario where they finish 9 and 3. I, I think they're either going to win these last two or lose these last two because I feel like they lose the Clemson, they'll spiral out control against State or vice versa. Um, I, yeah, uh, coaching has to be looked at on mainly defense and special teams. I, the, the one thing, so Chiswick early. I think fourth quarter we got sack on Loftus on like the 25 on their 25. Like it became like second and 15. Oh yeah. We, I we, know brought, what we brought pressure. And after that, that same drive, we dropped eight the rest of the drive. And he cut us up. Like you said, Swiss cheese. Um, I'm like, why don't you continue to bring pressure? And cause you had him on his heels and he went, we ended up going down and scoring a touchdown, to take the lead, I believe. And, um, two times they had a run outside of his own run where uh their running back was one on one with a DB, two different DBs each time. I think it was Chapman and Biggers, and they both got right up to the line of scrimmage and stopped and didn't pursue him. And then they just took a bad angle, or it wasn't really a bad angle. It was more of a hey, got got to contain and then didn't contain him, and they stopped going, stopped moving toward the line of scrimmage, and he beat him to the edge. And it's just faster. You got to co- oh, after it happened the first time, there should have been somebody on the sideline saying, Hey, DBs, set contain, don't do that again. And instead, it happened the very next drive that took the lead. And then uh, they did fix it in overtime. Uh, I think Chapman or Stick Lane made a tackle there on the edge in overtime that helped. But uh, the one play, I'd love to hear your take on this. What did you think about the defensive play call on fourth and seven with 45 seconds to go? <laughs> All right, I'm I'm getting kind of concerned now because you're reading my mind. As I'm listening to you talk about the uh, defensive issues, I'm drawing back to that play, and I'm saying to myself, why are they bringing the house on fourth down and relying on the secondary to play man-to-man coverage? Why? they this? Okay, I don't want to be a jerk. You didn't like the call. (laughs) I hated the call. I don't want to be that guy, but the secondary, other than Elijah Huzzy, Leaves a lot of room for improvement. I would not let any of those guys go single coverage without a safety over the top. I would not have done that. Fourth and seven. Listen, if you can't get pressure with four to five guys, there's something wrong to begin with. So, again, drop back. Make the third string quarterback make a throw in double coverage instead of wide open. I I, I, don't, I didn't understand that call. I was sitting there. I'm like, what are we doing? This it's kind of like when you're playing Madden. This is kind of like when you're playing Madden and you're online and you play field goal block and you let the other team score. Like, that's kind of what they were doing. So, I like the call. You like the call. Okay. So, and there's a reason I like the call. So, I have, we have been, I've been asking Chiswick to do something all year. Get out of nickel, stop one or the other. And in this case, you have a third string quarterback who's a true freshman and it's fourth and seven with 45 seconds to go, right? And he had already cut you up the drive before when you dropped eight. So I'm in the situation. I'm like, put pressure on him. Make him throw. Make him make a throw. And props to him. He did. I think at that point, you tip your hand and say, congratulations. 
Listen, I could have made that throw. The guy was ten. The, the guy was ten yards away from our defender. He was wide open. Me. I could have dropped that in there. I think another and and Lofton stood in and took the pressure. I think another like millisecond and that ball is either stripped or he's sacked. And they got really close to bring to get in there. I, I want. I'm just glad they were aggressive in that situation. And I guess it, on the flip side, you know, you have Drake May. So if they do score, you still feel comfortable forty seconds. But with fourth and seven, and it's a tough situation for the corner. You're right, being one on one because he has to play against the first down, but then he also has to play over the top. So it was a good double move. And if he grabs him, then it's a hold and it's a first down anyway. So. Uh, I believe the corner was Marcus Allen on the play there. So the only thing different that I would like to see was I would like to see us press because then you disrupt the route within five yards of the line of scrimmage. You have that leeway to make contact. And so if you press and just push him off that line just a little bit, then that's another half second that defensive front needs to get up to the line of scrimmage or to get to the quarterback. And that might have been the difference. So I like the aggressiveness. I, I see a lot of people upset that they didn't bring p- pressure, but then I'm like, at the same time, everybody's been calling for pressure all game. So uh, it might have been one of those situations where you put pressure on the first, second, and third quarter, not the fourth. But I'm also on the boat that when you go prevent, prevent defense prevents you from winning the game, is my opinion. And so I like the ability to put pressure and say Gray and Power Eccles and Cayman Rucker, those three – you send them all three, somebody's liable to get home, and they got really close. I was I was okay with the call. I would have been okay if they pressed at the line. Like, that would have been okay, but g- giving them 10 yards off the ball, that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, that was, Sauce Gardner, that, was, that was the only part. If you have Sauce Gardner at corner, and, and he's a lockdown guy, and that's the guy you're relying on, I could be like, all right, I'll take my chances. But Carolina's secondary is not very good. Maybe, would you have ever seen Huzzy out there? One-on-one? Oh, 100%. Yeah, I, I love so, what Elijah Huzzy brings. So so maybe – I think I think Duke had another receiver in the slot on the other side. So, yeah, Huzzy yeah. was in the Huzzy was in the slot, I believe. Yeah, so uh, I haven't went back and looked at the full 22 footage of that play, but I – Oh, you know what it was? They had the three the three receiver bunch on the, uh, on the, uh, on the closer on the side. Yeah. yeah, you're right. Yeah. So they had the one receiver one-on-one, but it felt like that's where they were going the whole time. And so – I was fine with it, uh, freshman quarterback uh, against Riley Leonard, maybe not, but with that, with in that situation with that quarterback, I was totally okay with that call. I can understand that, why that, it makes a lot of call, sense. That's probably the only call all night I was okay with defensively. <laughs> hey, at least it was one. <laughs> at least I, it was one. I don't, okay. uh, I'm not seeing the snap count yet, but I think it was like 95 snaps. Oh my goodness. But I think that we could both agree on this. You, you take the win as ugly as it as it was, and how you know it, how it didn't turn the way Carolina expected it to. Obviously, by you know you could make that a blowout. You take the win, and you learn from it, and that's the beautiful thing about football and 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 sports. You know, if you could get away with the win, you know the rest will take care of itself, and it's just up to them to make those adjustments over the next two weeks to finish this season strong. Because, like you said, this is a good football team. Nobody's saying that they're not, and they they have quality players and a star quarterback. It's just a matter of putting it all together. And honestly, did have they even put it all together this year? No. And people are saying that I've seen some Carolina fans that are frustrated, and obviously the two losses hurt. But you're eight and two 
we're talking about potential 10 and 2, even a 9 and 3 team. And uh, with that, I mean, it, we can say, or you see people say, oh, it's mediocre. No. Carolina football fans have seen mediocre. We were 2 and 9 and 3 and 9 before Matt got in Chapel Hill. We, and from 06 to 010 or 09, we were three, four win seasons. I, I don't I don't know how anybody can sit here and say a potential 10 win season is a mediocre team. They had some bad losses with Virginia and Georgia Tech, but you got Drake May, who, Drake May, who is fourth in the country in passing. We've not even talked about Omari Hampton yet. He's second in the country in rushing yards. I don't think anybody has realized what he's done on the ground. I didn't realize he was second in the country in rushing yards. I knew he's the best best back in the country. I mean, the conference, but I had no idea he was. He's only fourteen yards behind Ollie Gordon, the second of Oklahoma State. He has one thousand two hundred thirty six yards. And last night, I think he had uh, thirty one carries, or he ended up with more than that, thirty nine maybe. I got the box score right here for you: thirty one carries, thirty one, and then eight receptions. So he touched the ball thirty nine times. And he was on the field probably 91 plays. So you asked your – I mean, we talked about it earlier in the year, workhorse running back. That is workhorse. Forty, Almost 40 snaps or almost 50% of his snaps, he touched the ball. And he had 170 yards rushing, 169, five and a half yards of carry. I feel like every time he touched the ball, he was getting eight to nine yards of pop when you throw in the receiving. So uh, I've already talked about it. He doesn't get tackled for loss despite – the terrible offensive line. He he is he is a workhorse running back. And what's crazy is he's not eligible for the draft. He'd probably be a side round first round pick this year. Oh, absolutely. And you look at guys sophomore. like you look at guys like Brees Hall and yeah, running backs are not valued the way they used to be in the NFL. Like you're not you're not looking at the Darren McFadden days or the Reggie Bush days where those guys were going in the top five. Teams are going running back by committee. But they are valuing them early on in that second round where they're kind of on the fringe of being a first-round pick. Hampton, to me, is a day-two guy. If you look at him the way he's been playing, he's an early second-round pick to me. You saw Javante Williams a couple of years ago go in that second round, and he's right up there. Hampton might be better than Javante was at Carolina. And I agree. Be, I, I mean, it might be a little early, but and Javante had Michael Carter, the duo, but I don't know that we've had a workforce running back like this in 10 years. No. And like you said, Michael Carter took a lot of the load off of Javante too. Like what could Javante have done if it was just his backfield? And you look at what Hampton's done. And I, I like to say that I was right at the beginning of the year because I thought that he was oh, the guy. It, but man. I, I like to I like to take the credit for that, but I just saw something in his game where I just loved it. I love the way he runs, and like you said. He runs forward. That's the biggest thing with running backs. He's not a guy who's going to dance in the backfield. He's going to come at you, and he's going to get you yards. He's going to get you anywhere from two to 75 yards. He, he's that kind of guy, and he, it's just reliable. Well, have we seen a guy at Carolina take such a big jump from their freshman to sophomore year, or from any year for that matter, from a, from a previous year to next year? Hampton has taken – I mean, last year he couldn't hold on the football. He wasn't reading the gap. Like he, it just felt like he was just getting the ball and running straight, and not and running as fast as he could instead of being patient, finding the holes. And now you see him; he might stutter in the backfield. He's not going side to side. He's just looking for that hole. And when that hole's there, he hits it and hits it hard. And I, he is phenomenal. I, I don't know that we've seen a running back or any player for that matter take that big of a development from year one to year two, or from any year for that matter. 
Yeah, and it's a testament to what he's done in the offseason. You know, he went back to the drawing board and said, look, this is what I need to work on. This is how I need to improve. As a freshman, we get it. You come in, you want to make an impact. You want to be that guy. And you're running full steam ahead trying to find that hole to go 75 yards down the field. Carolina doesn't need that. Carolina needs him to be consistent. And that's what he's been this year. And he's hard to bring down. He hustles through the line. He finds that hole. He's a much smarter football player now. And you've seen it the last couple of weeks, even in passing situations. British Brooks hasn't been on the field a lot like we saw early on where he was the pass blocking running back. Hampton's been the guy. So right before our rise, he's developing into a a number one running back and that guy that you cannot take off the field. And this team would not be where they are without what he's done. And and that's something that you look at. And yes, Drake may deserves a lot of the attention, rightly so he's Drake freaking Mays. He's unbelievable. But the Tar Heels offense this year has gone as the running game goes. Yeah, absolutely. It develops, it opens up the passing game. It helps Drake out. We talked about it. Wrote about it in uh, the preseason. One of the five most important players or positions in the, for the team this year, and I think we both said the running back room or players on the in the in that unit. And that's something that they didn't have last year. Drake had to run a lot. He does not have to run as much now. Now it's more of a threat for him to run, but it's not a necessity, and it gives him the ability. Hampton's averaging six yards a carry for the year, exactly six yards a carry, and. When you got a run back, you can get the ball to him and get six yards. I mean, do it twice. That's a first down. And yeah. that that's where I don't understand Chip Lindsey and the offense when they get in the red zone is they don't give him the ball. And I'm like, you're on the three-yard line. He's getting six yards of carry. You give it to him twice. He's liable to get in with at least one of those. And, I mean, last night we went through a stretch where we had 16 snaps in the red zone and Hampton only touched it four times. And I think during that same stretch, like, Burnett had four field goals. I'm like, Burnett's kicking more than Hampton's getting the football in the red zone. Like, give him at least give him a shot twice and don't QB sneak with Drake May. And I love Drake, but don't don't do that. And I feel like that's where it feels like the coaching staff is in their own head sometimes uh, against Virginia. They didn't give him the ball at all. And he, where would he be in rushing yards? He's probably leading – he would definitely be leading the country in rushing. But, I mean – He'd be in the running for Doak Walker Award, all kinds of stuff. Like, just – and we'd be at least 9-1 if he had the football in the Virginia game. So, that's where I'm like, how do you have the – 28 is your best player in the on the field besides number 10, and nobody's looking up, hey, when's the last time we had the ball 28? Hey, why don't we give it to him here in the red zone, let him get in the, get, get over the goal line. Like, he, he has that speed, but then he also is a goal line bat that has the power. and. Hopefully they can look at that this week, and we keep saying it, but at this point it's week 10. I think they are who they are. They just haven't played their best game, and I think they will need their best game next week in Clemson. Absolutely, and one guy I want to bring up is Noah Burnett, guy who seemingly got replaced last year, comes in this year for the kicking job, and gets replaced by Ryan Coe. Coe gets hurt on opening night, and Burnett ever since has been phenomenal. He deserves a ton of credit for what he has been able to do in the special teams unit. Only one miss this year, and he has just been automatic. Six field goals on senior night. It was kind of like 
such a nice redemption story for him, but he deserves so much praise for what he's done. And I don't think Carolina fans are giving him the love he deserves. No, Noel Burnett has been, we didn't even think he was going to be the starter coming into the year. And he has been phenomenal uh, this year. Uh, he's a guy that, uh, I mean, and you look back at last year, he, he missed the kick against NC State in double overtime that lost, ultimately lost the game, uh, would have prolonged the game uh, if he would have made it. But then he bounces back. He's He has one missed kick against Georgia Tech last week. But then other than that, I mean, he's been phenomenal. I actually just uh, sent you this before we started our show. I mean, the kick last night uh, to tie the game, when I, when he kicked it, I thought he missed it. It, it, was, it started right. It was kind of like he hooked it. Uh, and hooked it in, but then you go back and look at the screenshot or look at a still shot of the play, and Duke has a guy coming free off the edge. If he doesn't hook it and he kicks that ball to straight or even to the left, it's probably blocked. And oh, hundred percent, yeah, he was so close to blocking that. And I don't know if that's something Burnett sees in real time. I don't know when plays moving that fast. Or even if you're seeing that as a kicker, you're probably looking down anyway. But he still made the kick, and that's the ultimate thing. But the fact that it was almost blocked again goes to show how bad special teams have been for Carolina uh, this year. Um, outside of the field goal unit, I mean, the kickoff unit has been bad. The return unit hasn't been great. The punt team defensively and offensively have been bad. So it feels like that's a, a change that or something that needs to be looked at as well. But Burnett has been a huge blessing, I guess, in disguise. We we all thought Ryan Coe was going to be the guy. He got hurt against App State and then – Burnett comes in and steps up and answers the bell. So, uh, huge shout-out to him. Absolutely. And the victory bell stays where it belongs in Chapel Hill. Five straight wins for the Tar Heels in this rivalry. And you got to take a deep breath, maybe take a nap because it was a late night. But it it was a, uh interesting one, to say the least. I, I had to think of the word there. and You know, it was, it was up and down. It was an emotional roller coaster. but. We're happy that it did end the way it did. It was a up and down roller coaster. It was very emotional. Uh, I think I was, uh, you're emotional. You're excited because of the win over a rival. And uh, obviously, it's always fun to beat Duke and uh, whatnot. But um, also, the fact that it could be Drake's last game. I think that's the, I don't think Carolina fans have, or we appreciate Drake, but I don't think we'll realize how much we appreciate Drake until he's gone. And uh, that's the biggest thing. I wish he would Walt just so everybody could say thank you. But uh, if he comes back, hey, I won't say no. <laughs> I don't think anybody would. I think Carolina fans would be jumping for joy. But there will be time to give Drake his flowers. It, it won't happen in Keenan, obviously, and you would have loved to have seen that, that ovation. But there will be time to honor and respect what Drake May has done for this program. And he, I give him a lot of credit for how he's handled this situation because a lot of guys would have just said, you know what, I'm going to declare for the draft, I'm going to walk. But Drake sees the bigger picture. And for him, he's worried about the logo on his uniform, not the name on the back. And yes, the name on the back is the legacy. And, and it's going to last for a very long time. But he truly, genuinely cares about this program and about the guys within it. And it's not about him, and he understands that. And I think that's part of the reason why he's going to be one hell of an NFL quarterback when he does decide that it is time to take that next step. 
yeah, Drake will be back in Chapel Hill. He'll, uh, you said it, he said it uh, on ACC Network. He loves Carolina. His family loves Carolina. Uh, we've already seen Sam Howell come back to Chapel Hill several times and been at games. So Drake will be back in Keenan and get to be recognized, and that's uh, that'll be very a very cool moment for him and uh, everybody can thank him what he's done for the program. So uh, moving ahead to Clemson next week, you got any uh, predictions yet? Uh, looking ahead to the Tigers, I'm just trying to digest last night. I I need some time here, my friend. I I can't. I, I need, need some time. time. Listen, it was a late night. We were up working late at getting ready for basketball on Sunday. And it's another long day, man. I got got men's basketball. I got women's basketball. And then to top it off, they put the Jets on primetime. This, this is my favorite time of year. When football and basketball overlap, and it's even more fun when you're winning football and basketball games. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's exciting for sure. Uh, we might do another show later in the week to break down the Tigers and whatnot. Oh, yeah, we'll be back to talk about basketball as well, our normal uh, time slot. But, of course, when a game like this happens, you got to do a pod. Oh, for sure. I mean, you can't beat your rival. Man, how about a week? What a weekend for Carolina fans, and what a weekend for uh, to hate Duke, right? Uh, nice little 24-hour <laughs> nice or a little over 24-hour period between Friday night and Saturday night. Uh, basketball got uh, Caleb Love winning the Cameron Indoor again, and then uh, – Carolina football knocks them off in classic fashion. So, I mean, two years in a row that they're not being able to stop Drake May there at the end of the game. We're going to talk about Caleb Love on our basketball show this week because I got we got to sure. give that man his flowers as well. But, you know for what? Sure. Shout out C-Love for going into Durham and, and taking care of biz, business again. You know, it, it's just what he does. He beats Duke. It's just how he is. That's what he's built to do. Rough weekend for the Blue Devils in football and basketball. But it's a great I love weekend it. to be a Tar Heel. I love it. Great weekend. Great day to be a Tar Heel. Great weekend to be a Tar Heel. Uh, got basketball here in about a few hours. So against the uh, Lehigh Mountain Hawks, which, hey, they had some success against Duke too. So <laughs> <laughs> they did. That they did. And you know what? As it all continues to go on, make sure you follow us at Talking to Heels. Uh, Talking Heels on X. Find us on YouTube and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast, make sure you tune in. And of course, as always, go heels. From go myself, heels. go heels. Nick I gotta just I gotta let Jordan close this show because I think that he didn't sleep. He probably slept less than I did, to be I, honest. I was up on adrenaline from the wind, but then I was trying to figure out this ATC tiebreaker scenario that I still haven't figured out. So maybe we'll get that figured out eventually at some point. So uh but well, yeah, for sure. For uh, myself, Jordan Falls, Nick Delahanty, uh, we'll be back later. Go Heels. Go Heels. <laughs>